pray. Let's get in the word. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for this part of the word. Help us to have ears to hear that we would love you, serve you, honor you. And uh, yeah, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, look, I do, this is just imagination right now. So just imagine with me. Imagine if there really was a doctor out there, scientist doctor, who genuinely found a cure for cancer. Imagine how good that would be. Right? And they opened a clinic. And everyone's skeptical at the start. So they only get a couple of people the first couple of days. And people walk in sick with cancer. They walk out completely cured. And skepticism is still kind of there. So the, the rest of that week, you know, maybe there's maybe, the, maybe 50 people turn up, something like that. And every one of the 50 turn up with cancer and walk away cured. Oh, wow, here's someone they genuinely got a cure for cancer. If that was true, right? It's an all imaginary. If that was true, you, what would it be like in a month's time? Man, there'd be thousands, tens of thousands of people all over the world turning up, wouldn't there, to go to this clinic? And imagine if, when it was like that, the guy who owns the clinic, the, 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 cancer, the cancer cure, kind of puts a sign on the front door early on Monday morning saying, you know, we're closed. And on, the, and on the close sign, it says, you know, I've actually got something more important to do. Wow. Could you imagine a moment like that? I've actually got something more important to do. That would be a huge comment, wouldn't it? To say, look, curing cancer is great and important and does so much good in our world. And yet there is something more important that this guy thinks he's got to do. What could that possibly be? Well, I start like that because Jesus does something like that. In the passage before us today, people come, it's a trickle to begin with, but pretty soon it's a flood of people come to him to try and get help, to try and get healed, to try and. And he does help a lot of people. And then after some time, he actually says, No, I actually have to leave a number of you here who are sick. I have to move on because there's something more important I need to do. And of course, we ought to be thinking, what is that? What could be so, more, so much more important? Well, that's the kind of issue in front of us as we come to the passage today. Let's see how it tumbles out and see, see what's here. Come with me to Luke chapter 4. Uh, and we'll pick it up at verse 14. Luke chapter 4. It starts like this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the, in the power of the Spirit. And news spread about him throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Now, this is clearly picking it, picking it up where we left off last week. Remember, Satan, no, Jesus, sorry, Jesus had gone into the wilderness. Yes, he took on Satan and won. He stood up to all the temptations. And in the power of the Spirit, Jesus returns to preach the word of God in Galilee. And Luke here sums up, I think, very quickly what was quite likely to be a number of weeks of Jesus' life. Because it says here that he was teaching in their synagogues. That is, in a region of Galilee, there were a number of towns and they would have had weekly gatherings. And on those weekly gatherings in the, in the churches, if I can call it that, around Galilee, there was Jesus preaching and teaching. And such was the clarity and the goodness of his preaching that people all over the region were hearing about it. And Luke wants us to see that he was, he was just very well received. Luke says everybody praised him. And after traveling and teaching, Luke tells us that Jesus then went to Nazareth. That is his hometown. To the place where he actually spent, well, has spent most of the 30 years of his life so far, uh, where, where, where he grew up. 
And you can imagine the hometown after hearing him going, uh, hearing him going out to all the galley and all the all the synagogues in you know, a number of weeks, maybe a number of months, and they hear they would have been so proud. You know, the local daily advertiser would have had the headline, you know, um, local boy does good, something like that, right? Um, and of course, here he is, he's come home and it's a sab- it, it's it's a Sabbath day, so they, they're going to be having their their church service, and um, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, he went, he, he went to church. Uh, Luke's actually very clear about this. He says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Uh, that is, he regularly went to church. That was his custom. I, I, I pause at this point because it's, worth, it's just worth noting. Um, if you ever wake up on a Sunday morning, you know, you know, maybe you're not feeling the greatest, and you go, look, what would Jesus do? He'd go to church. Okay, WWJD, he'd go to church. Um, but look, I'm not doing it. That's not just kind of waking up on a Sunday morning and worrying about that. Or um, I think it's much, it's much a bigger issue for Jesus. It's a lifelong pattern. It's about his plans every week, about what he'd do on his weekends. Um, you know, what am I going to do? It's a long weekend. What, what, it's not, I'm not wanting to help. I'm not wanting to put a guilt trip on anyone and say, look, you can't go ever away because I'm not actually talking just about our church. I'm talking about if you go away on holidays, you go you go somewhere, uh, you you make different plans. What are you going to do when you're away? What are you going to do on a Sunday if you're on holidays? If you made a trip, what would Jesus do? Well, it was his custom. No matter where he was, he'd go to church. It's a great little model here that we ought to just pause and just notice on the way through. And on this Sabbath day, or on this on this uh, in this church meeting, on this in Nazareth, of course, this Sabbath in the, for the Jewish people would have been a Saturday. But on this Sabbath day in Nazareth, with the local boy having made such a splash, he gets the invitation that you can come and preach in our church service this week. And they invite him to preach, and they invite him to lead. And when it comes time to the Bible reading, Jesus gets the scroll. Well, he gets given to him the scroll of Isaiah, which is great for us because we've just been preaching for Isaiah, so we've got some good familiarity with it. He goes to chapter sixty-one. And just listen to what he reads. It's there in verse 17. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All eyes are on Jesus as he reads this. And he, as he's, he's just read from Isaiah chapter 61, he returns the scroll and we get told there that he sits down. Uh, not really like what Barry did. Barry got up here and read from Luke 4 and he sits down in the congregation. That's fantastic, Barry. Well done. But it was a custom in the synagogue that actually the preacher sat down and the congregation stood. And I kind of like that's a great idea. I don't mind that idea. But he, he was the one sitting down. They were the ones standing. And they all eyes are on him. And in verse 21, he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And I look at read that and go, man, what a, what, what a day. What a day to go to church that was. Because often you go to church and you'll, you'll read the Bible and you hear of prophecies that are speaking of things, that sometimes things that will happen, that, will, that when they were written would happen in the future but for us it's already been fulfilled it's happened in the past we read prophecies that are already fulfilled in the past and other times you come to church and you read of prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled they're going to be fulfilled in the, in the future i don't think i've ever come to church and a prophecy is fulfilled in the moment today 
It's a what a day if you missed that church day, man. You missed out big time because today he says this is fulfilled in your hearing. And what was being fulfilled? Well, we know Isaiah now. Jesus is actually saying to him, you know, God's mission. We saw in Isaiah that that mission to transform the world by punishing the sinners, but purifying the repentant. That big God's mission, that God's mission had, and how key the capital S servant was in that mission. Jesus picks up one of his capital S servant moments to go, you know, that's me. I'm the capital S servant. And that mission today, it is being fulfilled in your hearing, where it's, he's appointing me, Jesus is saying, to go and proclaim, to go and bring freedom of prisoners, to sight for the blind. And I think this is why Jesus quite goes for this part of Isaiah on that, on that day. Because empowered by the Spirit, he's saying, I've been sent by God to the blind, to the poor, to the oppressed. This is his target group. The, the prisoner, the oppressed, his goal is to give them sight, to set them free. And even the passage itself contains within it how the mission is actually to be undertaken. It's, it says there, to preach, good, to preach good news to the poor. To proclaim freedom for the prisoner. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. It's clear that how this mission will be undertaken is through words, through proclamation, through, through speaking. This is what's going to be needed to transform people's lives. And it's so crucial that we remember that, that we as a church, we've got to be committed to words, to, to, to proclamation. And I think you see that the reality. In our 15 years, I've been here with Wagga Evangelical for around 15 years. And over those 15 years, we've actually heard all sorts of different testimonies from people, people who have come to Christ and been saved. And we've seen people from the Defence Force and see people from you know, Defence Force, from Defence Force to doctors, from electricians to educators, from the employed to the unemployed, from criminals to law-abiding citizens, people who are atheists to people who are religious. We've seen all sorts of people, but what's in common with them all is that their lives were transfer, transformed by words, by gospel words by the good news of Jesus Christ. Different stories, yes, every one of them, but they all have this in common. Because Jesus, as he proclaims the good news, he doesn't come physically to set prisoners free. In fact, we know that because remember John the Baptist was in prison. Jesus didn't even visit him. John had a question and Jesus sent him a word and a message that actually probably helped him to stay in prison even longer. And eventually, John gets his head chopped off, beheaded by, by Herod in prison. And so the prisoners or the spirits, the, the blind here are, are not, the, well, they're, they're spiritually blind. The imprisoned here is those imprisoned to sin and judgment. The poor are those who are poor in spirit. These are the ones that Jesus comes to proclaim to. And you, you see, you actually pick this up, don't we, in our songs. Uh, Charles, um, Charles Wesley wrote a fairly famous hymn that many of you will know called And Can It Be? And speaking of his own conversion, he will pick up this prison language. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Or even the, um, the ever more famous one, isn't it? The, the Amazing Grace song by John Newton picks up that same kind of imagery. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was blind spiritually blind 
But now, now I see. It's, it's, this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to set people free from sin and judgment. It's what Isaiah the prophet kept on talking to us about, this captivity, this blindness that we are all in. Jesus came to preach freedom. And I like it. It's fascinating how he picks up this language of to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's an interesting little line to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you've got your Bible eyes really open, you're looking really carefully, you might remember in the Old Testament, Leviticus 25 is where it is. There's this, this day that the Lord sets apart, or this year actually the Lord sets apart, and it's called the year of Jubilee. And it was a year of God's favor because in the year of Jubilee, which happened every 50 years, which are every seven times seven years, that's 49, and in the 50th year, there was a decree that God said that all debts had to be cancelled. That all the slaves were to be set free. That anyone who had lost their land, it had to be returned to them. And it was like God had built into the calendar of Israel this big reset button, the year of the Lord's favour. And it was fantastic that you could just press a reset button and it all went back. Now, friends, look, there are lots of Old Testament laws that I'm really quite glad that we're not under anymore because I like eating prawns and I, um, I like bacon. I think there's probably a good agreement on bacon. And maybe once every 50 years I get to eat lobster, something like that. But here is one Old Testament law that now I'm getting close to 50. Man, every 50 years debts get cancelled. That sounds pretty good. Year of Jubilee. Now look, there is no record in the Old Testament that Israel ever, ever practiced or obeyed this command. They never, there's no record that they ever had a year of Jubilee. And it is like really the nation of Israel has been waiting for someone who could come in and press the reset button. All debts cancelled. You can start completely afresh again. And Jesus comes in that synagogue that day and says, you know, today I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Come to press that reset button. Now, every life needs a reset, right? Every life needs a reset button. You know, every, every relationship actually needs re a reset button. Sometimes we get so caught up in the pain of the past that we often can't start afresh. And it, Jesus come to proclaim a, a reset. It's no wonder, actually, when you notice that kind of Old Testament imagery and that they flocked to him and that they were so positive and in awe of his gracious words. And all of Galilee, with all of Galilee flocking to him, and as he comes to his hometown there in Nazareth, it's interesting that as he returns home, there's a sense where they kind of like the gracious part of his words too, but they're not particularly taken by him. Because look at verse 22 and what happens in his hometown. Verse 22, it says, uh, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Can, can you see what they're doing there? He's come to bring them good news, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And now they're trying to find reasons to not believe in him. And why did they do that? People actually around the world, even today, people are desperately trying to find reasons not to believe in Jesus. And here, did you notice the reason is, isn't that Joseph's boy? Isn't that Joe's boy? I mean, Joe's a good carpenter, right? I've got a chair that he built out the back and it's, it's pretty good, but I don't think he could breed the Messiah. 
not even that he's he's not even you know Jesus true dad that kind of can, can you get the feel of what they're saying he can't be anyone special he he's so familiar to them and we have that phrase don't we about familiarity breeds contempt and in his hometown Jesus is held in some contempt people are thinking hey you know I went to school with his younger sister uh, I beat him in a race in third class. How can he be the Messiah? You know, it's that kind of thing that's going on. And Jesus senses the seed of doubt in their minds, and and I think it's it's every well, it's very clear actually that it, part of it is fueled by Jesus' choice not to do miracles in his hometown like he'd done in Capernaum. And aware of that issue, look at what he says in verse twenty-three. It says, "Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me: Physician, heal yourself." And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. But Jesus is not going to kind of just comply with this kind of request that he could just do a miracle like a party trick. And he, and he actually tells them why he's not going to do that in the next verse. Look at verse 24. He says, truly I told you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He's aware that no matter what he does, no matter what he preaches, no matter what gracious words he speaks, no matter what miracles he does, in his hometown, he's just not going to be accepted. That there is a stubbornness within them to believe the word of God to them because of their familiarity with him. And Jesus wants to point out to them that in this way, they are just like some of their ancestors. And he does that by pointing out two moments in Israel's history. Two little stories. The first one's there in verse 25. See verse 25. Jesus says to them, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. See, Jesus' point here, he's actually saying to his hometown, to his people, going, have you ever wondered... Have you ever wondered why in the time of Elijah when there was that massive famine where there were lots of widows in need, have you ever wondered, my hometown, why it was that Elijah didn't go to any of those widows? But instead he goes to a widow in Zarephath, in Sidon. You know, Sidon is where the Phoenicians are. In other words, have you ever wondered why Elijah went and ministered to somebody outside of God's people? Ever wondered why he did that? And he leaves that question hanging. And he gives them a second example to make the same point. Look at verse 27. He says, um, And look, there were, many, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the times of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Nahum the Syrian. And again, Jesus' point is the same. Have you ever wondered? He's, 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 have you ever wondered? While when there were lots of people with leprosy in Israel, have you ever wondered... Why Elisha only healed Nahum, who was a Syrian. In other words, someone who's outside of Israel. My hometown people, have you ever wondered why it was like that? And again, he leaves it in the air. He leaves the question unanswered. Oh, they clearly get the inference he's making. And in case you can't see it immediately, the obvious answer is because the people back then in Elijah and Elisha's time just were never going to listen. Back then, the people were so rude, 
and so obnoxious towards God's prophet, so unwilling to take notice or even listen carefully to what God was saying to them through that prophet, that God saw that attitude and that, 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 that offensive way of relating to God and his prophet, that God effectively said to them, if you ain't listen to me, I'll take my promises and I'll take my salvation and I'll take it to someone who will listen. I'll take it outside. And Jesus' point is he's saying that you people in my own hometown, you people of Nazareth, you're no different. You're so rude and so obnoxious that you're just simply, because of your prejudice, completely unwilling to listen to what God is doing through me. And if you won't listen, God is saying, I'll take my promises, I'll take my salvation to those who will. And the people in the hometown of Jesus, in Nazareth, they get that. They don't need it spirit. They can see that this is what he is saying. And rather than learn a hard lesson and actually change their ways, they become irate and add one sin to another sin. Look at what happens in verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up and they drove him out of town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And I, I just amazed at how fickle they are. How fickle they are. One minute they politely hear him preach and amazed at his gracious word, and they're all fanboys. And the next moment they're a lynch mob looking to execute him. They are so fickle. And it's all because of words. All he did was speak. All because of words. And in their fury, we get told they get to the point they march Jesus up the very edge of this cliff. No doubt it's a hill that he's walked hundreds of times in his life because he grew up there. And he gets to the top and they're going there to, uh, to walk him off the edge. And we get told in verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. His time had not yet come. Jesus himself will determine when and where he will die, and that will happen at God's appointed hour. But these people, they didn't want him. And worse still, they didn't want anyone else to have him either. They couldn't stand the fact that he was going to go and offer salvation to outsiders, and so they go to kill him. And even though Jesus at this point is really quite close to death, what lesson did he learn from this interaction? What lesson did he learn? I want you to keep that question in mind as we look at what at the very next verse. Look at verse 31. The very next thing we get told is, then he, when Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath day he taught the people. And they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Can you see in these verses here that he didn't learn the wrong lesson? Now, I know that's a double negative, so you've got to listen carefully. But I think it's a more powerful way to hear it. He didn't learn the wrong lesson. So he had this near-death experience in Nazareth, all because he spoke and spoke words to them and spoke the gospel words to them. And their reaction to him speaking gospel words to them was hostility and they tried to kill him. Now, what was the easy but wrong lesson to learn? That at the next place, just keep your mouth shut, 
Keep your head low. Keep yourself out of trouble if you don't say anything. But that's not the lesson he learnt, was it? Instead, verse 31, in that very next verse, he gets to Capernaum and what does he do? He teaches there also. He preaches the kingdom of God again. The very thing that has caused the people to attempt to kill him in the first place. And I highlight that kind of moment for you in this text here because for some of us, we do learn the wrong lesson when we get rejected. See, there will be a time for you in your life. For many of you here, there'll be a time when the penny dropped. Maybe it's the first time you became a Christian and you realised just how good Jesus was, how massive his forgiveness is, how amazing the gospel is. Or maybe, maybe it wasn't for you at the time of conversion. Maybe it was later on in life. Maybe you were brought up in a Christian home and as you grew and grew into more and more maturity, there's a moment in your life where, where in your maturity, you just were so amazed at what Jesus has done for you. But, it, but there's a point in your life where you, you just can't out help but tell other people about how great Jesus is. And what you discovered as you started to talk to people about how great Jesus is, what you discovered was that people weren't that interested potentially to hear what you had to say. And if all they were were just not interested, that actually could have been a, you know, a good case scenario because in a bad case scenario, then people abuse you. People try to shut you up. People speak behind your back. People ridicule and mock you. And people in an ongoing way undermine you and turn others against you. And, and the lesson you learnt was to keep silent about Jesus. And I want to say that is not the lesson to learn. That is certainly not the lesson Jesus learnt. If you talk about Jesus and you talk about his kingdom and that news happens to be rejected, do not learn the lesson to just shut up and be silent. Sure, learn lessons about being gentle. Sure, learn lessons about being gracious and learn lessons about being timely. Absolutely. But the lesson not to learn is that if you get rejected, you say nothing. And on this day in Capernaum, when Jesus again chose to speak, when he was allowed to address the congregation in that synagogue, they again were amazed at his teaching. It's interesting that this time Luke doesn't give us any detail of what he said. We don't even get a summary. But we do, I think, get some insight into what he was speaking about because of the incident that happens in verse 33. Look at verse 33. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Has he come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I think it's clear from this little scene here with this demon-possessed man, the demon calling out, that Jesus has clearly been speaking about the kingdom and proclaiming good news to the broken, freedom for the people who are captive, in this case, captive by an evil spirit. He's been preaching about God's rule coming, and with God's rule coming, evil's going to be done away with. It's going to be the year of the Lord's favor, and this evil spirit hears his own judgment being announced. Have you come to destroy us? Is his question. The teaching of Jesus, the news he is bringing, the proclamation he's making is scary news for the world of evil. And unlike those kind of Exodus, uh, Exodus, no, was it? Um, the, was it the Exorcist movies? If you've ever had the unfortunate um, 
uh, the watch, you know, where there's chant, where there's an evil spirit, and the priest there is arm wrestling the demon to come out, and there's a there's chants and concoctions and holy water and garlic, and there's a lot of effort, and three hours later or three weeks later, nothing happens. Like there's that, that kind of nothing like that here. Here Jesus comes to a man who's possessed by a demon. The demon screams at Jesus. Jesus just firmly uses words. Be quiet, Jesus sternly said. Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And again, the people are amazed because there's no hocus pocus with Jesus. There's no great struggle. He just says a word and it happens. And this theme of the power of the words just keeps going. Because look at the next scene. Look at verse 38. The next scene. Jesus left the synagogue and went, home, went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever. Rebuked the fever. And it left her and she at once got up and began to wait with them. I mean, it is is a fascinating scene here because here you have Simon, who's you know Simon Peter, the uh, the Apostle Peter, so the fo- the so called first Pope, but he's clearly married, and he's got because he's got a mother in law, and if you're a married man here, can I highlight to you here that he actually cares for his mother in law? It's great news, <laughs> cares for his mother in law. She's so sick, he's with her, in, he's got her in, in the house. He brings Jesus to her. And we can hear that she's got a fever and we can think, oh, there's no worries, you've got a fever, take a Panadol, so I'll sort it out. But I mean, this is, this is before modern medication, right? And an uncontrolled fever without modern medication is a serious health moment. So serious it could cost her her life. And yet Jesus, again, with no hocus pocus, no huge effort, rebukes. It's a strange word, isn't it? Because it's a speaking word. Rebukes. I mean, did he say, you know, Silly fever, what are you doing here? Get out of here. I don't know what he said, right? But he rebukes the fever. He speaks to the fever. And the woman is restored. And then she does what every single saved person does, which is she goes and serves the Lord Jesus Christ straight away. And look, with such gracious and authoritative teaching and the casting out of demons and the healing of seriously sick people, it's no surprise what happens next in verse 40, is it? Because look at verse 40. At sunset... The people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. See, news that news like this and what Jesus can do in healing people and helping people and giving freedom to the people, that just spreads like wildfire. And look, we get told it's still the same day because it happens at sunset that same day, which means it's a Sabbath day. The Sabbath begins at sunset on Friday and ends on sunset on Saturday. And so people had to wait till sunset until they could kind of carry anything, like carry sick people. And so it's at sunset that all of a sudden people are just streaming to where Jesus is. People getting carried, sick people from all sorts of places, and they just keep coming. And obviously it goes late into the night. Because look at verse 42, it says at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. And he's looking for some time to be alone. And yet we get told the people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him. They tried to keep him from leaving them. And what I want you to notice here is a threat to the mission. 
Jesus, the first threat really, this is the second threat, the first threat was that in his, in his hometown, they didn't want him and they didn't want anyone else to have him. That's threat number one. But here the second threat is that the people in Capernaum, they did want him, but they too didn't want anyone else to have him. They wanted him all to themselves. And so they tried to keep him from leaving. And on the surface, I want to say it's a very reasonable thing to be thinking and doing, isn't it? Because you've got the Son of God, the Saviour of the world. You don't want him to go. Think of all the sicknesses he could heal. Think of all the people who were oppressed that he could liberate. They tried to keep him for themselves. Completely understandable. Completely ungodly. You cannot love Jesus and have a passion for him and then not want others to come and know him and follow him as well. You cannot delight in Jesus and then keep him to yourself and not allow others to delight in him as well. And that is why Jesus says, look at verse 43, Well, at daybreak he went to the solitary place. They were looking for him. They tried to keep him from leaving, but verse 43, But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And here is the moment, isn't it? Like my introduction, where the doctor slowly closes the door and puts up the close for business sign and says, I found something more important to do than cure cancer. Because, I mean, think, think about this carefully, isn't it? It's a, it's a really important moment to know in Jesus' life and to see the implications of what's said here. Jesus really was able to heal people. That's why so many came. Anything at all, leprosy, no worries. You're paralyzed. We'll see this next week. He can heal that too. If you've got dropsy, I read the Bible. I don't know what dropsy is. I don't know what's dropping off if you've got dropsy, but whatever it is, it doesn't sound good, right? He can, he, he can fix it. He could genuinely heal anything. And yet at the age of 33, although he could have given himself over to emptying hospitals the world over, although he could have transformed the living circumstances of so many people in the first century, he could have given himself over to improving the quality of life and the life expectancy of millions upon millions of people. But instead, he gave himself to the proclamation, to speaking the words. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom to other towns also. Because that is why I was sent. Jesus is making a very clear decision here, which reveals a very clear priority. He is so focused on making sure that every Jew in Judea gets to hear the good news of the kingdom that he is prepared, he is prepared to leave sick people in one town, to leave them sick, to leave behind a quota of suffering in order to go to the next town. And start preaching to them. He walks away from a quota of need to deal with the biggest need of all. The forgiveness of sins. And in case you're not already convinced of that, let me highlight it for you again like the kids talk did. There were he did the same thing with famine, didn't he? There were twice, wasn't it, when he, healed, when, he, uh, when he fed massive crowds of people. Thousands upon thousands of hungry people. And he fed them. And all he had was a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish and all that kind of stuff. And that's all he had because he could make food out of nothing. Which means he could have given his life over to 
to feeding nations of the world over, nations in poverty, nations in extreme poverty where people are literally starving to death. And yet at the age of 33, Jesus gives up a life that could have been given over to eradicating famine and instead gives himself over to proclaiming the news of the kingdom and instead heads towards the cross and again walks away from a quota of need to deal with the biggest need of all, the forgiveness of sins. It's just a highlight for us. You know, Jesus has not come to heal. He has the authority to heal, but it's not his priority. He's come to proclaim the kingdom. And friends, I'm telling you that we here individually as people, but also we here as a community of believers at, at, Wagga, at, at Wagga Evangelical Church, we must be a church, we must be a fellowship, we must be human beings who are completely committed to seeing the word of God spread, to hear the good news of Jesus go out. You need to hear me right on this because we must also deeply care for the social needs, like social justice needs, social you know, famine, and we must also care for it. It's not an overall situation, right? We need to care for both words and deeds, truth and love. But you do need to understand that the thing that does transform people's lives is not social justice. Social justice is a quota of love that will deal with a measure of suffering. But at the end of the day, if you want the ultimate transformation, it's only coming one way, and that is through the good news about Jesus Christ being proclaimed. And so, of course, we need to be you know, we need to be supportive and committed to movements like you know making poverty history, or we need to help out with things like uh, reducing the sex slaves of Southeast Asia. We need to be committed to saving the lives of the unborn. Those kind of things must be on our agenda, but never at the expense of Jesus Christ and Him crucified being preached. The fact that Jesus made this choice to proclaim the kingdom in light of the other choices that were available to him is a very powerful thing to notice. It is saying to us that what the cross was going to be about is far, far more important, more important than health and safety, more important than starvation and poverty. Jesus' decision shows us that the cross and the proclamation of the gospel is far, far more significant than any other good that Jesus could have done. And it's because, isn't it, that at the cross and through the proclamation, this is how God is, well, Jesus is glorifying his Father by reconciling men and women to God, by dealing with God's righteous anger towards sinners and bringing purification to repentant men and women. And Jesus shows us here in his decision that there is a primacy and an urgency to that work. An urgency that means that this work must have absolute priority and any other good we can do is very secondary. That's his decision. Which makes me then want to end today by talking to you about your life and your decisions and what's urgent and priority in your life. If preaching the kingdom of God was Jesus' top priority and shaped completely what he did, it actually shaped what he said yes to and determined what he said no to. And it's worth me asking, in your life, what shapes what you say yes to? And what you say no to? In your life, is it evangelism first, and prayer first, and the kingdom first? Or is it job first, and social first, and sport first, and 
What do you say yes to and what do you say no to? And is that driven by the kingdom? I'm not saying you need to be the next Billy Graham. None of us need, well, greatest someone was, right? We'd love that. But do reflect on your life today about what you say yes to, what you say no to, with your money, with your time, with your relationships, and reflect if these things do reflect the priority of proclaiming the kingdom. Because it's so easy to be sidetracked. And it's even easier to learn the wrong lessons. How about a prayer that we don't? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for those in our lifetimes who haven't learned the wrong lessons and faithfully proclaim the news of your Son to us. Father, we're so thankful that you've seen that happen. We're so joyful about it. Help us, Father, to have the courage to, to keep speaking no matter what happens in this world because the news of Jesus is the help, is the proclaiming, the, is the freedom for the blind and the prisoners and that, that we all are in sin, that we need. Father, may we learn that lesson well and always speak whenever we can. Amen.